Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. The Bathurst 12-hour has been run and won, and the winner was the AAA-supported Sun Energy One Racing Mercedes, driven by Jules Gunon, Lucas Stoltz, Martin Conrad, and Aussie expat Kenny Habul. We will have plenty to say about the 12-hour later in the pod. Garth Tander has been appointed to the Karting Australia Board of Directors. He replaces US-bound Porsche man Troy Bundy there. Motorsport Australia has decided to suspend the issuing of permits for for Targa-style tarmac rallies following the latest death on the Targa Tasmania. Uh, That casts more doubt over the future of those tarmac rally events. Scott McLaughlin won't return to the Bathurst 1000 later this year. The 2019 Great Race winner was linked to a comeback with Dick Johnson Racing. However, DJR has now confirmed that Alex Davison and Tony Dalberto will return to the team. It will be TD's seventh Bathurst with DJR, and he'll be paired with Anton Di Pasquale, while Davison returns alongside his brother Will for a second consecutive year. Matt Stone Racing has publicly committed to the GM and the Camaro ahead of the 2023 Supercars season. The team was linked to a potential Ford move. However, that was shut down by Ford itself last week when it said its dance card was full with the existing teams plus WAU, which will join next year. MSR has ordered three Gen 3 spec Camaros. Supercast team boss Tim Blanchard will make a comeback in the Australian Formula Ford Series at Winton this weekend. He won the Australian Formula Ford Championship back in 2007 and will race in the same JLET colours on his Magao as he used in his title winning year. If he goes all right against the uh, current crop of Formula Ford heroes, he's, uh, he says he's considering heading to the UK to run the Walter Hayes Trophy, which would be uh, pretty cool. Team 18 has appointed Bruin Beasley as its team manager. Bruin runs the MTech Motorsport TRS squad and was uh, previously the team manager at Erebus Motorsport. Steve Henderson vacated that role at Team 18 earlier this year and John Moore has been has stepped up for the first four race beans of the year, but Bruin will take over from this weekend's Winton Super Sprint onwards. Speaking of appointments, David Tunnicliffe will replace outgoing Supercars TV boss Nathan Prendergast. Tunnis is currently head of production at Supercars and has been working uh, at the category since 2016. He'll take over the role next month when Prendergast departs to take up a role with SX Global, working on the new FIM Supercross World Championship Series. Gary Jacobson will continue with Subway backing on his Premier Racing Holden for the rest of the season. That was initially a two-race deal that they've massaged into a whole year deal now, so that's nicely played by the newest team on the Supercars grid. And we could know how the facelifted Ford Mustang Supercar will look by September this year, as that's when Supercars hopes to have its homologation aero testing underway for the Gen 3 cars. That does, however, depend on the timing of the global rollout of the S650 Mustang. Joining me this week to discuss all that and much more is a teammate that helped me stay awake throughout the entire Bathurst 12 hours, Stefan Bartholomew. And I do actually mean that. 
two. The um, the three fifteen a.m. start here in WA was pretty brutal, uh, particularly for a night owl like myself that isn't as diligent with his bedtime as he probably should be. There were a few moments, uh, particularly early in the race, I was pretty close to powdering. But um, what kept me going was a pretty much continuous twelve hour messenger conversation with Stefan. Apart from when he was off stirring his Sunday stew, there was a few laughs along the way. How was that stew, by the way, Stefan? I'm not going to lie, Andrew. It was stupendous. Oh, very good. There were certainly a few a uh, few downsides to not being at the track this year, but the opportunity to slow cook some beef over 12 hours was uh, too good to pass up. I feel that is a very good use of an endurance race, and I have to say that I, you know, I, I made a decision not to go. I thought this year I'll just sit it out until the big boys come back, and I thought it was a really good idea until it was only on about Saturday that I went, hang on a minute, this race isn't going to start at 5.15am for me. It's going to start at 3.15am, and it was uh, – it made for it made a long race seem a fair bit longer, and we, once we go back to February and we've got a three hour time difference to the west uh, for the start next year, even if the start does go back to five forty five, I will definitely be getting on a plane just to avoid uh, just to avoid getting up at that time of the morning again. Anyway, look, it was a fascinating Bathurst twelve hour, uh, very different to what we're used to in a lot of ways, and you know there is definitely plenty to discuss from the weekend. Let's start with the headline news. Uh, great to see a win for an Aussie. Kenny Habul, he's a larger-than-life character. He loves Bathurst. He's been a keen supporter of the 12-hour for years. He's always run a car there. They've actually had, even as Pro-Am entries, you know, I think they were second a couple of years ago. They've had they've had some good results there. He recently bought property on Conrod Strait. I think it was a property he hadn't even seen because he was stuck in the US at the time. But that's how much he loves Bathurst. I mean, this was a good news story, right, Stefan? Yeah, there weren't many pairings where I think the AM driver would be the headline of, of the victory, but he was just probably the story that the race sort of needed. I mean, the way he speaks about his history with Peter Brock, you know, washing wheels for him as a 14-year-old at Bathurst in 87 and and just Bathurst, the place in general, what it means to him, it's um, it's pretty powerful stuff. And and Kenny's story, even, even outside of that, is pretty amazing when you look what he's done in the US with his solar business, Sun Energy, it's it's pretty incredible. He's, it seems like he's been ahead of the game there on a lot of stuff with large-scale solar projects, and he's clearly made a lot of money out of that as a result, and it's allowed him to go uh, racing all over the world. I have to say, his own personal role in the race was quite intriguing. He did cop a stint in the in the wet conditions. Um, he managed to get two drive-throughs for exactly the same restart infringement in terms of passing cars before the control line. He then had a spin at Murray's corner, and he was lucky that the thing didn't end up bogged. It was only a couple of, you know, probably a few feet off uh, those back wheels going into the dirt, which is generally troublesome in a GT3 car. He was drifting the car around the track in the wet and GT3 cars are definitely not known for their drifting prowess. I mean, there was almost Paul Morris 2014 vibes to the way that he had all those issues and then at the end of the day, he's standing on the top step of the podium, right? <laughs> well, they are uh, pretty good mates, I think, those two. So I hope they uh, hope they like your analogy there. But um, <laughs> yeah, certainly Kenny... Um, yeah, he had that spin and those couple of drive-throughs. The car certainly didn't look like a winner at that point, but we always knew it was the kind of race where um, you could you could come from further back than full back and still still win the race. So, to be fair to him, he did cop some pretty bad conditions there, and like he said afterwards, um, the team had missed it a bit with the tire pressure on that first set of wets, which made the car super taily and really hard to drive. And he certainly didn't do what most AMs do in that situation, where you just back the pace right off and just try to survive. He uh, tried to sprint car his way through that stint, <laughs> which was uh, pretty unusual for a GT3 race. But um, 
yeah, the restart infringements were strange, especially to do that twice. Um, surely there was some sort of communication issue. He sort of had a bizarre way of explaining it afterwards about uh, Germans yelling at him on the radio and he couldn't couldn't understand what was happening. But uh, that's that's very odd when Roland Dane and Mark Dutton were, were running that car effectively that um, they didn't have all that sorted out. But for me, Kenny made up for that by quoting a bit of classic Alan Grice uh, race cam chat from Bathurst 87 with the green has to mean go, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, that was all, all very funny. It definitely was. It is a funny race that in some ways it's so unforgiving. Like the smallest shunt in a GT3 car will, you know, just write the chassis off. But in other ways it's ridiculously forgiving. You can go through a stint and have two drive-throughs and a spin. You know, in the 1,000 that's really going to make life hard for you. But in this race, you know, we'll talk about the Craft Bamboo car later, the way you can just hemorrhage track position and still end up, you know, contending for the race win or in the case of the Sun Energy car, winning the race. It's a uh, it's a funny one like that. Anyway, let's have a listen to what Kenny had to say after the race. Uh, here he is talking about, you know, that connection to Peter Brock that you mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put you to sleep, um, so I won't be too long. But, look, he was good to me. Uh, I had a rough upbringing and uh, had to leave home and I went to Melbourne and he looked after me and took me in and I worked there and um, with his race teams and basically just swept the floors and, washed the wheels and uh, he always checked on me and Bev also. Um, you know, when everyone went home at the end of the night and no one was around, I'd jump in the race car. And um, couldn't tell anyone because that was illegal, but I just sat in the car and just, you know, as a kid with dreams, um, you know, he, he was the ultimate. He never ever turned away from, a, from an autograph or a picture with someone. He, he gave so much of his time. And you don't see that, to be honest, with a lot of the superstars in the world, all across different sports, you don't see enough of, let me put myself out and make time for 200 people in front of me. And he was that guy. He never left early. He, ne- he never said no. And um, I was here in 87. Uh, I was 14 years old. We actually finished third, but ended up winning when the, um, the other cars were disqualified. I own that car now, the number 10. Drove it at Goodwood. Uh, she's a bit how's your uncle um, compared to this Mercedes. <laughs> no ABS, no traction control, no power steering. Uh, I don't know how they drove them around here to be honest back then, but no, he was good to me. And uh, just a shout out to Bev. She's fighting some um, some health issues and um, we're, we're all praying for her and, and hoping she pulls through. She's a good lady. Kenny also talked about his new Bathurst digs and wanting to do more racing at Mount Panorama. It's, uh, it's a beautiful property. I'm going to build a new house and... Um, you know, it's just a good place for my kids to to come and just enjoy the countryside. It's a, it's a beautiful town. The view's amazing. And, you know, my kids were born in the U.S., so they're not used to this. And I really want them to spend more time here. And, and what what a better place to be to learn a little bit about Australia. I mean, it couldn't be any more Australian than this track and this hill. So, no, I'm excited with that. Um, and, and definitely want to come back more. I mean, it's really hard for us, you know. I'm, I, I, I'm a CEO, so I don't get as much time to race as these guys, and obviously I'm almost 49 years old, so it's getting more and more difficult, but I push myself to be competitive uh, and generally do okay around the world, but this is one place that's, that's different, and it's very difficult, and you just can't come here, and I think I did, you know, 11 laps or something before the race. I mean, it's just too difficult. You know, these cars are very fast. They're a lot faster than a V8 supercar across the top. They don't have the margin, they don't roll and move, they're very stiff and they're very aerosensitive, so they're not very forgiving if you get a little bit out of control. 
And then you throw in the fog and the darkness and then the rain. I mean, it's just a miracle that, that you know, half of us aren't in hospital. Um, it is a fast, difficult place, and that's what, that's what makes it, you know, such an enigma. That's, that's why people talk about it all around the world, because it's just, no one's ever come here and just conquered this place. No one's ever done, I mean, Peter told me way back, you know, in 2004 or something, he said, no one's ever done a perfect lap here. And if you try too hard, you bring it back four feet shorter. And that's what happens, you know, that's, that's what makes it mystical to me. So um, definitely want to do more racing, the Easter race or whatever else I can, I can, I can do. We need more laps here, if drivers like you know, Marty and myself, we need more time. And I think we could get closer to the pros. I mean, there's some tracks in an average stint that I'm half a second off these guys during the race. And here it's two and a half seconds. And it's just too hard. You need the time to, to close in on it. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Now, Stefan, on Saturday night, it looked for all money that we were going to see an Audi whitewash on Sundays. Those R8s looked so, so quick, and they really did look to have not just an edge, but a fair old margin on the Mercs. Come Sunday, though, the gap seemed significantly smaller. Um, yes, the fact we ended up with an all-Mercedes podium was largely down to circumstances and some key mistakes from the Audi crews, but there's no doubt that the Mercs were more competitive in comparison. The reason for that is that there was a balance of performance change on the uh, Saturday night. The Audis were hit with 15 kilograms of success ballast. The Mercedes were given a five kilogram haircut. So that's a 20 kg turnaround, which is significant. Uh, the Lamborghini was stripped to five kilograms as well. Uh, and it was 10 kilograms for the Porsche. Um, what's fascinating about all this is it seems that the Audi drivers kind of brought that on themselves, particularly that wild showdown between Chas Mostert and Kelvin Vanderlinder in the shootout qualifying on Saturday evening. It really felt like Kelvin did not want to be beaten by Chas. Chas did not want to be beaten by Kelvin. And Chaz really doesn't have a dog in the BOP fight. It's not going to affect, you know, his pay packet, whether the car has more weight or less weight. You know, this is not his primary focus. And they just attracted – he sort of suckered Kelvin into into this fight and they just attracted the wrong sort of attention from the rule makers. I did hear rumours that maybe the Audi sport folk weren't overly impressed with the drivers about how that played out. But, geez, it made for some good TV, right? Yeah, it did. It was – it was sort of a bizarre Saturday there with the way that um, they were going to have a shootout, obviously, and then that was decided they didn't want to have a shootout because they didn't have tyre warming ovens this year and they were afraid that they, someone was going to bin a car if they sent people out on cold, uh, cold rubber. But the way that all happened on Saturday and the way that the TV didn't seem to know what was going on for a while, mm. it was just confusion. It just felt like amateur hour, but in the end... yeah. Yeah, those Audi boys made that um, that second 15-minute session for the top five cars pretty exciting. And, and as you say, it was it was bizarre that they had a uh, they really had a box on between the two Audi blokes. Where normally a lot of the build-up for 12 hour is about sandbagging, so you don't get a BOP uh, <laughs> whack. Um, and those blokes went for it. And if you ignore the the uh, the madness of it, like for Chaz to go and outdo Kelvin, who's in those cars all the time. That's uh, that was pretty impressive. That lap that he actually did. 
Oh, particularly when he was down at the second sector. It really just it was it was one of the few times where the car crosses the line and you're like, Oh wow, I did not expect that change of position to happen. But definitely funny when when starting position is so irrelevant that they would go out and have that fight. But you know, we as as the people following the race, we were definitely the ones who benefited from it. So I'm glad it happened, but I can understand that Audi were maybe not all that happy about how it happened. I have to say, I, look, I, I was really sceptical about that change to the shootout when it rolled out. Obviously, the way it rolled out was super weird. As you said, even the TV guys didn't seem, you know, I think at one point someone asked someone about running, asked Chaz about running last in the shootout or whatever because it obviously hadn't fully floated down what was what was happening. Initially, I thought, just run old tyres. Chaz said, oh, we wouldn't be able to run new tyres. Well, who cares? Just go out there on old tyres, run to the conditions, whatever. But in practice, it really worked. The, the, the new format really worked. And I think it works because qualifying is so much more exciting when a tyre gets better and better throughout the session rather than being a one-lap wonder. We're so used in supercars and in Formula One, you know, there's one shot. You get one shot at it. And if you mess it up or whatever, or you don't get that you don't get a seesawing battle or you might, but it's over one lap here. It just kept building and building and building. And look, the guys could actually race each other in qualifying like Chaz and Kelvin did. And I thought it was pretty cool. And I, I like the more I think about it, the more I think I wouldn't be against this becoming the new way to do the 12 hour shootout. Like let's be different to the 1000. Let's leave the single lap thing to October because that is, you know, the best hour of motorsport all year. Why isn't this the new 12 hour shootout? Maybe it's a top eight. You know that they go out there at once together or something like that. There's, this has sort of shown that there's an opportunity to be a bit flexible with the rules, and and you can come up with a really cool product. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I'd probably just run ten all at once for fifteen minutes or something like yeah. that. Um, for me, like it's a little bit harder because there's such a stable platform to really see uh, where the lap time comes and goes with the GT cars compared to a supercar, like. Um, yeah, the supercar shootout at Bathurst is is probably better for mine because you can really see the body language of the cars where it's yeah. it's more of a surprise with the GT3 things what number it actually does. So as, as we saw there with Chaz's lap where it was a total shock that he ended up with that third sector getting pulled. So I think that lends itself more to having, yeah, 10 cars on the track just, just going for it. Yep, no, totally agree. Uh, let's have a chat about the car that finished second, the Craft Bamboo Mercedes. It was the only international car in the field. They missed all of Saturday due to the car needing an engine change, which I think it went to the Bathurst TAFE to have that done. Um, and then like, for the first half of the race, it just looked like it was nowhere near contention. It was cycling through the pits. The bonnet was up on the thing all the time. You know, were they having problems? Were, was this some crazy strategy play that you know clearly is not going to work because they're the only one doing it? It turns out that there was a lot more to it than initially met the eye. It was a crazy strategy play, but it was a very clever one. Um, it really brought that car into contention. At one point, it was leading by well over a minute. Uh, here's what two of the drivers, Daniel uh, Junkadella and Kevin C., had to say after the race. And I'm very surprised that we actually fooled everyone with that because nobody really probably thought about it. And it was great to see. You know, I have my... My parents back at home, my friends back at home writing on to me like, what the hell are you guys doing? This looks really shit. <laughs> so apparently they knew better from home. Um, but no, we did, you know, we, we did what we had to do and, um, and we were standing up front, which is, it was great. It was pretty funny. Uh, yesterday, of course, we didn't have any running. All of us, of the team members, were actually sitting in the trailer and going through the rubles. 
we had hours and hours of uh, studying of the rules and we came up with this strategy. So we, a big thanks to the team. They really uh, came up with the perfect strategy for us to climb up from last to seconds. So the strategy was just get the two-minute mandatory stops out of the way as quickly as possible. There were nine mandatory two-minute stops in the race, and they just wanted to get them done. And then they could do normal race pit stops for the rest of the race. And it worked, and it worked because nobody else did it. And it got them in contention. And had that car, I think they were suffering a little bit of top speed. Maro Engel made a mistake after his second-last stop at turn one that cost him enough time to really be the difference in the end. You know, they could easily have won that race. Um, there was sort of there was a, a, an idea that they went for that. They rolled the dice on that strategy because they had to start at the back. But my mail is that that was always the plan, regardless of starting position. They've been playing this for weeks. The theory was that the supercars engineers, and there was a lot of them scattered up and down pit lane, would probably play the mandatory stops as you would expect them to. Um, and that gave you know these guys a bit of room for creativity. They never used a lucky dog to get a lap back either. They did go a lap down a couple of times, but it always came back to them organically. I mean, it was pretty impressive strategizing, I think. Stefan, you'd enjoy a bit of out-of-the-box thinking, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, the other thing with the Kraft Bamboo car, though, is I think they ended up running their bronze driver, Kevin C., a bit too late with his last stint. And so he was up against Lucas Stoltz in the yeah. Sun Energy car. So that was where the arm wrestle kind of went in favor of Sun Energy and they yeah, didn't really sure. get it back. So I think that was kind of important. But as for the getting rid of the CPS, yeah, it was clever. But from a race point of view, it just felt like a farce. And this is what happens when you have all these artificial rules. Like, I don't blame the team in any way, but, you know, teams are going to go and poke holes in, in all of these things. And hopefully next year with a stronger entry, they'll simplify the race back a bit again. And all of these rules, while they had well-meaning intentions of keeping everyone in the fight and all that sort of stuff, it was just a, a regulation soup for those trying to uh, wade through it uh, at home on TV. Oh, 100%. Uh, the, you know, the wider point to make here is what is the point of the two-minute stops rule? If it was something for safety to stop crews rushing, you know, you could argue that there's an element of sense to that, but then you can't just let guys go back to race stops as soon as they've they've they've, they've, they've barreled through their nine compulsory stops. And you can't really mandate that every stop has to be two minutes because then, you know, a simple tech glitch or a puncture or something is going to take you out of the race. I believe the intention was to try and ease the burden of personnel on teams. You know, we heard a lot about teams struggling to get the people together to go to the race. Craft Bamboo scrambled to get people together to form a team to go and do the race. But I don't really see how the pit stop thing did that. There were the same personnel limits in terms of, you know, who can cross the line during stops and all that sort of stuff. All that stuff applied. So I I would be very, very surprised if we see that rule still around next year, right? Like, would you be surprised if they retain that rule? Yeah, I think it'll it'll go. From memory, like they had um, compulsory pit stop times early in the 12 hours GT3 era as well, just like they had a compulsory AM driver. And these were all things that as it grew, they took away to make it more of a pure race, but then they had to bring it back again in this sort of stopgap year where they were just trying to get a race on. Let's look at a couple of other points of discussion regarding regulations from the weekend. The first was uh, race officials allowing Melbourne Performance Centre to bring a substitute chassis into play after Theo Conduras crashed the Superbahn car in practice on Friday. Traditionally, that's not something that we see. There was a bit of angst on the socials about, you know, whether that is really in the spirit of a Bathurst Enduro that you can just, you know, stick some bits in a brand new car or not a brand new car, but a totally different car and, and carry on in the same race. You know, 
given surely given the size of the field this year, it was okay to make that exception. But, you know, just this time around, I, I think that that was just a pragmatic approach that had to happen. Uh, what do you reckon? Yeah, I don't think anyone lost out with that or would really, you know, I don't think we should begrudge that car being in the race. Like, it was always going to happen with someone, really, wasn't it? Like, we talked last week about the fact that five cars crashed out before uh, before race day in 2020 and they couldn't yeah. afford for, for that to be happening when there was only 20 entries in the first place. So, again, I don't think it should be a regular thing because if it's, if it's a permanent rule that you can do that, then uh, everyone will try to turn up with a spare car and, it adds cost, cost, cost. But um, what was what was amazing with that um, with that crash was that uh, that was pretty much the only camera running, wasn't it, on Friday, right yeah. where uh, he stuck it in up there at Reed Park. Yep. Amazing. You would have you would have loved covering practice without footage, wouldn't you? Oh, covering practice is obviously something I love anyway, and doing it without being able to see what's going on is. Uh it's just a whole little extra layer of fun, I tell you. Although I have to say, once once they got the the, the audio comms going, at least we had we had Crayley and Nolte there to help guide us through. But it does. I always feel I know it's expensive to run cameras, but if you want to be a big boy motor race, probably just run some cameras, have some proper <laughs> coverage of your practice session. I think personally, as someone who doesn't have to sign any checks or be responsible for any money that goes into this event at all. Um, what about the uh, the lucky dog rule, Stefan? I know that you are you're an anti lucky dog man. You like your dogs as luckless as possible. No getting your laps back at Bathurst if you go a lap down, too bad. But again, you know, let, let's look at it through the same lens as the replacement chassis thing. This year, did it make sense to have that rule in place? No, I'm drawing the line on this one. And and actually, before we get into it, let's get one thing straight on this: a lucky dog is where one car. The first car I lap down gets a wave by. I can cop that, but okay. unlapping the whole field, that's just socialist motor racing gone way too far. <laughs> and so I mean, it's to lucky be, dogs. It's a, it's a plural. Yeah, There's everyone's a, a lucky dogs. dog. Even, yeah. if you're, even if you're 80 laps down, you get one back just uh, <laughs> just for the lols. But, um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, on the 12-hour, this has crept into motor racing at its highest levels. And we, we also have this in the 1,000 now. So whether yep. they keep it or not, I don't know, but the what made it even worse was the fact that, um, like, it was only in for parts of the race and the race director could turn it on and off based on yeah. whether they deemed the conditions suitable. So teams couldn't even, like, strategize around relying on it. And, yeah, it was just a massive uh, playing guide with people's races in the end, which I think the fewer of those levers that, that have to be pulled by race control – um, and it's not their fault. They're not writing the rules. But, um, yeah, the, the better. I don't think that should be in there at all. Yeah, and, and here's – look, I, I don't I don't hate the theory of it quite as much as, as you do, and I, I think it did have its place this year. But there were definitely a couple of issues with it. As you pointed out, firstly, we saw two occasions where race control didn't let the lap cars go through because of the weather conditions. Um, and the second time that happened, it basically took – the Vanderlinder car completely out of contention right when the race was shaping up to be an absolute beauty and it would have been fantastic to see Kelvin scrapping with those Mercedes and seeing what those Mercedes guys really had if he was coming hunting them down. Um, so the reason that happened um, from what I'm being told is that there was a – there was so the, the lucky dog rule came into play or the wave by rule came into play uh, at the commencement of the third hour of the race. There was a safety car around that time. Uh, it was kind of foggy and a bit wet at that point. So um, James Taylor, the um, uh, race director, said, no, I'm not letting cars pass. 
So when there were sort of similar conditions at that very last safety car, which could have got that car, that Vanderlinde car is lap back, the idea was, well, we have to be consistent here. You know, we have to just say no because we said no this morning. What I don't understand is why they said no in the first place. Like, you're about to release the field to go racing and bash doors and do whatever you want. Surely you can trust these guys to drive side by side behind the safety car for a moment as they unlap themselves. And I know those guys go on a bit of a sprint and maybe there was concerns that, you know, you're going to have guys throwing it off, trying to make up as much time once they got waved by as they could. But you're about to release the field. If you were going to do another 20 minutes behind the safety car because you're unhappy with the conditions, fine. But you're about to let them go racing. So why would you not let them unlap themselves? I really just don't. I don't understand that at all. There was also a very late call. It was only appeared in the supperies to to lock up those lucky dogs in the last two hours of the race. So a bit like at the start of the race, no lucky dogs for three hours, and then no more lucky dogs for the last two hours. Uh, I, like Stefan, surely at the death of the race is where this could have made a big, big difference. And it, and and it kind of took. It meant that once the two hour mark ticked over. There was no chance of the Vanderlinde car getting back into contention, and that's where the rule could have actually really spiced up the race. And they made a decision to not apply it in that way. I mean, it seems it seems odd. I mean, were there concerns over manipulation or something like that? Maybe. Yeah, that, that's got to be part of the thinking. I mean, especially in those last couple of hours, like if um, if they had the rule in place for those hours. You know, surely we see another Audi mysteriously stop on track to get Kelvin back on the lead lap. So yeah, it's just all, all of these artificial things um, just yeah create create more problems. And I think with um, some of the stuff with the wet conditions, like the fear is that you, you sort of because they don't get the full lap back, they sort of just get put in front of the field and they're trying to sprint away. That if you end up putting a bunch of AMs to, uh, like out in front of the leaders um, in wet conditions, it just puts too much pressure on them. But Again, yeah, it just uh, it just tangles itself up when you introduce these things. It definitely, definitely does. Let's talk about the Audis and the race a little bit. I mean, I think that's just a golden opportunity gone begging there for MPC, um, particularly with that 74 car um, with uh, Vanderlinde, Nathaniel Burton and, and Brad Schumacher in it. That thing was so rapid. They had the gun am in the field in Brad Schumacher who can genuinely pedal. Um, and they left him in the car for eight minutes too long, and that's the penalty that took him off the lead lap and basically ended their race. I mean, leaving the AM driver in the car for too long, that's a new one, right, Stefan? Yeah, and it was clearly very costly. I mean, to do that with two cars was uh, – that'll be a tough debrief there, I would imagine, because mm, yep. even without their – or sorry, even with their BOP own goal, like Audi still should have won that race. They still yeah. had the fastest car on track when they were going Absolutely. flat out at the end, so – yeah, I mean, that, that pit stop was painful to watch, wasn't it, when Kelvin tried to get out, but then uh, they were yelling at him to get back in because they yeah. had the penalty to, to serve. Um, it's one of the one of the enduring images of the weekend. And, like, at least Murph got to go to the Portaloo when he had his time penalty at Bathurst, but Kelvin had to sit there and just uh, just think about it. Yeah, he was riding a roller coaster as well. Once he got out of the car, he was furious, and then they sort of got told, hey, it's all right, there's going to be, you know, you'll get your lap back as soon as there's a safety car, and then uh, – that did not happen, and they were out of the race. So I don't think there was many happy drivers in the Audi camp on Sunday evening, but there you go. All right, let's move on to some supercars news now. No Scotty McLaughlin for the Bathurst 1000 this year, Stefan. If we don't see him come back soon, will we maybe never see him come back, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, it's it's hard to hard to know really, but um, certainly when he left at the end of 2020, it didn't feel like he was coming back in a hurry. And obviously last year there were travel restrictions which were uh, going to make it difficult for him to come back for Bathurst, but this year that wasn't an issue and he's he's elected not to. But yeah, to be honest, I don't blame him for that. He's He's got his new challenge over there in IndyCar in the USA yeah. and, and a new life really. And Clearly, if he did come back for Bathurst, he'd want to do it properly, which means coming out early for test days and, and things like that. Um, and it just becomes a, a bigger commitment than just coming down here for one weekend. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see in future, but I'm certainly not surprised he's not coming. Yeah, I guess when you leave at the very top of the sport, you've only got – you can only go backwards if you come back and you don't do it properly or if you don't – you know, if it, things don't go your way or you're not up to speed because your brain's not fully clicked into – driving these cars properly, you know, he left as the dominant driver in the series and, and you know, I could sort of understand going, how much do I really want to come back and, you know, have a tough weekend if it went that way. It's, 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 it is definitely understandable. Um, this, this Gen 3 aero testing stuff is fairly interesting too. It looks like there'll be a dry run of straight line testing with the current Gen 3 prototypes in the next week or so just to see where things are at. And then Supercars is hoping that its proper aero testing will take place in September. Uh, what's interesting about that is that kind of gives us a rough date on when we could know what the 2023 Mustang is actually going to look like. It won't look like it does now because that's the S550 car and we're going to have the X650 body shape um, for next year. But um, until the car has been globally unveiled – I understand that there's no way that they're going to let one go. You know that Ford in the US is going to want a new spec Mustang ripping around a um, an airstrip in Oki. So you know, I, I think that the timing will depend largely on when and how they roll out the new Mustang. Um, so there's still a few question marks there. Stephanie, are you looking forward to seeing the uh, the new look Stang? Oh, for sure. New car launches are always cool and. You know, we, we could end up seeing the road car and the supercar and the NASCAR sort of launched at a, a pretty similar time. Yep. Um, manufacturers tend to plan these launches a long way out. So while publicly we don't know uh, exactly what the plan is with Ford, you would think that um, supercars would be in on that and have planned around it accordingly. Um, as you say, this, this test that's going to come up in the next couple of weeks with the current Gen 3 cars, the prototypes, um, the straight line testing will really be about just checking that the CFD work that they do with D2H, which is a, a UK-based engineering company, just to check that that's all on track, that the numbers that they're getting on the computer uh, correlate to the real-world open-air straight line testing that they do. Um, so then once they then go and convert the, the Mustang prototype to its new panels, they can go and, and hit the numbers uh, pretty much straight away when they do the proper aero test where we're thinking in September. So the supercars clearly know, I mean, they have to get this right. The combination of Ford Performance and, and Ludo Lacroix and all of those guys um, really shot holes through the system when they homologated the Gen 2 Mustang. Yes. And uh, a lot of work, clearly, and a couple of other aero tests have been done since then. So they know uh, they know that sort of stuff can't happen again. I still really want to see the renders of the of the Gen Two Mustang where the end plates basically went down to the floor on the side. That would be yeah, uh, that would be pretty cool to see. And Ford has been very cagey about how it's going to roll out the uh, the you know the, the sort of global unveiling of the XS six fifty. So um, there is something interesting at play there. 
All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. Ania Bastianini took a third win of the 2022 MotoGP season at the French Grand Prix in Le Mans. Uh, he took the win after longtime leader Francesco Bagnaia crashed out. Jack Miller finished second and Aleix Espargaro third. Fabio Quartararo still leads the points after finishing fourth but didn't look overly impressively quick at his home race. Colton Herter won a frenetic Grand Prix of Indianapolis. Uh, some strategic gambles in mixed weather got him from got him the win from 14th on the grid. Simon Pagano was second and Will Power third, with Power now leading the points. And Kurt Busch uh, ran down a pair of Kyles, his brother Kyle Busch and then Kyle Larson to win the NASCAR Cup Series race in Kansas. Now in Formula One, uh, the Alpine F1 team says it, it ex- it's expecting to make a decision between retaining Fernando Alonso or promoting Aussie uh, Oscar Piastri to a race seat around the British Grand Prix. So we're looking at a sort of mid-July decision on uh, young Oscar's fate. So that will definitely be one we'll be keeping an eye on. All right, let's take a look in the Castrol mailbag. Brenton Thorpe asked why the Bathurst 12-hour has the world's smallest podium. I'm not sure that's in the Guinness Book of Records, but uh, anyway, he says two drivers barely fit on each step, which is obviously not ideal for the 12-hour race. I can't say I've ever really thought about the size of the podium at Bathurst. It might have looked a bit smaller this year as the winning team had four drivers, and they've usually only got three driver crews, but I've never noticed it to be overly small. But here's what I did notice about the podium, Stefan. It seems they let the top three from Class C up on the podium as well, even though only one car actually finished the race. There was only one car classified, and I just don't know if I can get on board with that. Like the second Class C car finished 92 laps down, wasn't classified, but the drivers were up there spraying champagne, talking about their awesome second place. Like I kind of get that it's a shame if you send the winners up there on their own. You know, that doesn't look great, but I still feel like it's a better outcome than pretending these guys – finish the race. Stefan, would you be comfortable letting the bubbly loose if you were the best part of 100 laps down at the finish? I'm just trying to follow along here. So you want to make the podium smaller because we've got this podium <laughs> paradox going on that either there's too many drivers and not enough space or there's too much space and not enough drivers to fill it. So I'm just, uh, yeah, just trying to get my head around that. But uh, I think, yeah, if, if uh, you're not classified as a finisher, it's it's probably a no-brainer that you don't get a trophy. But I guess they didn't want to go and pulp those trophies, so some people got them. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. All right, it's time for our Castrol Stars of the Week. Stephen, who have you got this week? Well, my Castrol Star of the Week this week is Garth Tander. The fact that he's a very good broadcaster is not new news, but he was outstanding at the Bathurst 12 hour, I thought. His insights into what was going on was was next level, especially with that pretty recent experience of uh, of racing in that race without it. His only mistake was using up his voice a little too early in the race. He, <laughs> yep. was, uh, he was nearly a DNF there, but um, overall, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but I loved the commentary team this year, um, obviously led brilliantly as always by Richard Crow, but the chemistry between the callers was great and even rotating through having some drivers come into the box during the race was like an old school Bathurst 1000. So uh, yeah, all of that was a big tick for me. I, I just agree with everything you said there. The commentary was a massive step up this year. Uh, Krause did tell me yesterday that, yeah, it was a classic rookie 12-hour error from Garth to uh, to go way too hard, way too early on the old vocal cords, and he was always uh, destined for disaster. Um, but, you know, he, he held it together really well. I don't uh, I don't really understand the infatuation with, the, with what we sort of know as the regular commentary crew for 
this race. I guess it's there's this kind of you know cute in a Murray Walker style way that that Hindoff sort of misreads everything so often and shouts about it so loudly. But sorry, I'll take genuine insight from someone like Garth any day of the week. I thought it was a perfect combo of of, of top broadcast talent and, and and you know an expert comments guy who you know just quietly is top broadcast talent. Um, as well, as you say, Richard just Richard is the voice of the twelve hour. Does a fantastic job. Nolte does, you know, he is just an experienced race caller that's going to do a good job of everything he does. And then, um, and then Garth was just a brilliant addition. His insight was absolutely fantastic. So I, I really hope that we roll into next year's race, and that's what the commentary lineup looks like because I thought it was the best that we've um, we've seen. For my start, I'm going to go with Brad Schumacher. Uh, I thought he drove really well across. The weekend, we still don't know a whole lot about this guy, but boy, he can drive for an am. Um, you know, he was performing on what is really his home soil. He lives right there at Mount Panorama, and you know, like a, a, a win on home soil was really up for grabs if the team um, had executed that. I think he deserves to be a bit upset about that because you know that was this this year was the chance for someone like him to win this race. You know, if we're back to normal as planned from next year onwards, that's it's going to be hard for Ams to fight for wins. So it is a bit of a, a missed opportunity there, but I felt like he really made a name for himself this weekend, which, you know, when your name is Schumacher is, is pretty tough to do because some other blokes kind of, kind of got there and did that first. Um, but yeah, no, fantastic drive across the weekend from Brad. And the fact well, that, um, the fact that Brad offered to bring Kenny Habul a cup of sugar when he does move into his Bathurst residence was a, was a nice touch as well. I thought that it, that was very, very cool. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here. And yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.